Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. I have to make one comment first, aside from the fact that I'm happy to be back. I have to make one comment about Valley Beit Midrash, which struck me, and coming here and seeing you all here reminded me of that. There's something about the Valley Beit Midrash which I want to acknowledge and appreciate. The two directors, uh, when I was here last time, were Darren Kleinberg and uh, now Shmuel Nass. First of all, I consider these two are by far the best students I've ever had. So number one is, I'm struck by that. Number two, of course, uh, it's not just the intellectual gifts, but the human, the idealism, the compassion, the caring, the enthusiasm. Now, my point is, you know, the famous line, the congregation gets the rabbi it deserves, or or it wants, in in a sense. So there must be something about you people (laughs) that you have such good judgment and such good people leading you. So I, I want to acknowledge that it takes... First of all, it takes a community to take care of a good person also and to look out for them and to hold them. So I'm really happy to be here and to be part of your conversation. When, when Shmuley asked me what I'd like to talk about with you, I said, I want to talk about life. I was tempted to say the meaning of life, but not, I'm not sure how many of you still remember Monty Python, so I didn't, want to, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to push my luck or date myself in terms of... But yes, I've been, I'm actually working on a book now uh, which I think is finally coming to an end. It was supposed to be a one-year project when I retired to write it, and it's, it'll be 10 years by, by December. <laughs> Actually, there was a very close friend. I told him I planned to dedicate the book to him. About two years ago, he pulled me aside and said, yes, he said, this is the most irresponsible, he's, he's, he's as old as me, it's the most irresponsible behavior I've ever seen. He said, you have no idea at your age to take 10 years to do anything. <laughs> no guarantee. He said, I want this book in my lifetime, not dedicated to my memory. <laughs> you know, so anyway, but nevertheless, the, the theme of the book is, in fact, what I call the triumph of life. Namely, I've come to believe that the most important or central teaching of Judaism it's not about God, although, admittedly, that's been the most influential and central teaching of ours. I mean, teaching the whole world about God, but, but rather it's about life. Namely, that our religion taught the world that this infinite, invisible, beyond, beyond sight and yet present, ever-present God cares deeply, profoundly, in fact, loves people, actually loves life. And therefore, what our religion is about is that because God loves people and loves life in particular, God would like to see 
the triumph of life, or that this world that we live in, you and I live in, should be so perfected that literally life will fully win out. Now, what does that mean, fully win out? It means, number one, it will fill the world with life. Fill it with life. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18 says, this is the word of the Lord God, the creator, who of heaven and earth. You should know the world was not created to be empty, but to be settled, to be filled with life. The Talmud concludes from that, that, well, I'll come back to it in a moment later, that having two children isn't enough, but you have to have a third child. But be that as it may, number one, we fill the world with life. And number two, that the world will be so upgraded that life will be given all the dignity it deserves. All the dignity it deserves. So let me come, so this is the thing that runs through the whole tradition about A, that God is life, and B, the religion is all about God's love of life and trying to get human beings to embrace life, to live life deeply, to fulfill life in all its ways. So I start with God. First of all, the Bible says God is the source of life. Life is so miraculous, we take it for granted. But it's something extremely, extremely miraculous, extraordinary, out of the ordinary. It's very vulnerable. It's very, very exposed. I mean, but it's deep, it, it, is, it, it walks, it talks, it does all kinds of things that are really quite remarkable that nothing else in the world can do. So number one is life is, is, a, is a miracle. You should understand that. God is the source of that life. And God sustains it. In other words, it wouldn't go on by itself if the whole world, as it were, is not rooted or in some way bathed in this hidden presence. It's like we're all growing, like a tree grows in the ground. We're all growing in this medium which is hidden, but which sustains all forms of life. And we say it every Rosh Hashanah. This is a God who not only creates life and sustains it, but loves it, is mad about it. In fact, to be more accurate as the... We say in the prayer services, Melech Chafetz B'chaim. We ask God on Yom Hashanah, remember us for life. Melech, the ruler, Chafetz B'chaim. What does Chafetz mean? Wants, but it's more, it means desires. Or to be more accurate, lusts. God lusts for life. The, in, the, in the Megillah of Esther, it says, when, a, when the women had that competition to win Achazveresh's favor, it says she would spend the night in the... In the hospital in the, in the uh, palace, and she would not be called back unless Chafetz, unless the Melech had overwhelming desire for her. So God lusts for life. And I'll give you an example. If you look at the first chapter of Genesis, when God creates the world. So every day when the world creates, it's not a bad job, but it's a beautiful creation. God says, this is good. Every day ends, God says, good. But what does God say when God sees life? It doesn't simply say it's good. Twice it happens, and each time it's the same reaction. The first reaction is, God blesses life. When he sees life, he doesn't just say it's good. He blesses it. He says, in Yiddish, because God speaks Yiddish, I think, you know what that means? In other words, the first reaction is, gee, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. And the second blessing is, give me more. That's what God says, give me more. Never too much life. Give me more. That's the two responses. Not just good, I want more. So God embraces it, and of course, as I said, wants us to make the world become the great sustainer of life. So for example, again, according to the Messianic dream, and I think that's the core of Judaism, if you look at your sources in front of you, I've been giving you just paragraph one. We're not going to get to cover all these sources. 
<laughs> don't get nervous because we'd be here until the Messiah, Messiah, until Messiah come. But actually, this is number nine, which I will not go through. But number nine is the Messianic age. The Jewish dream is, remember you heard it here first. The Jewish dream is to overcome all the enemies of life. Who are the enemies of life? Poverty. Because you don't have money, you don't have anything, you can't take care of life and treat it properly. Hunger, which undermines life. Oppression, inequality, oppression, tyranny. It degrades, it makes unequal. War, right? What did the prophets say about war? They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into ruin, they'll learn one and one. That's the Jewish dream, every enemy of life. Because how do wars win? You win a war by wiping out precious lives. Sickness. The Jewish dream is we will overcome sickness. Isaiah says, when Messiah comes, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the lame will dance. In other words, part of the Jewish dream is to overcome sickness in all forms. So our ultimate dream as a religion is, according to the words of Isaiah, death will be swallowed up in eternity. That's the real Jewish dream. So, I mean, you're looking at me like this guy is crazy, but yes, the Jewish ultimate dream is we'll overcome death itself. In other words, or as I say, if you think that's unreasonable, I'll make you a compromise offer. How about we'll extend life? But you should know, just for the record, since the 19th century, the average age in the world has shifted from upper 30s to middle 70s. So I figure if we double the human life expectancy every 100 years, in a in a few centuries, we'll be right where we were dreaming of. We'll overcome that. Okay, so, but I'm serious. In other words, that's part of the Jewish dream we have to think of, to extend life and to, of course, upgrade and improve its quality. That's the Messianic dream. So that's the second example of how life is central. And now, how, how are we going to do that? I don't have time now. I'll talk about it more in the latest session. But the answer, of course, the Jewish answer is it's a kind of partnership. It won't be done, and it won't be done in one generation. It's a partnership between God and humanity. Jews are special partners, maybe limited partners, I don't know. Managing partners. We're partners with God and with other generations, which together, because it'll take all these generations to really move the world to where we want it to go. But, so again, the, the first theme is God is the God of life and wants life. The second theme of the religion is we improve life and improve the world and continue to develop that idea. The third is therefore that all the laws of Judaism, that's my claim, they're not about laws, they're not about obedience, they're not about, they're about life and making life better. Even the ritual laws, even the ritual laws are not about ritual or not about God. They're about training people to appreciate and extend life. Again, I'll give you several examples in this You'll take it home and read it because we're not going to get through all of it. For example, some of the most remote, recondite, you know, sort of weird laws that no one pays attention anymore because, like the laws of the temple. The temple doesn't exist. No one pays attention anymore. But in the temple complex, death was not allowed inside. I mean, animal death, that's a separate question, but human death was not allowed. In fact, you couldn't enter the temple you couldn't bring a, a, a corpse in. You couldn't enter the temple if you yourself had contact with the corpse unless you went through an elaborate ritual of purification. And what was the purification? It ends up with going to a mikvah and immersing yourself or being born again. The whole idea of born again, that's the origins of born again. That 
to go into God's house because God's house is the house of life. And someday this whole world will be God's house when we make the whole world a world of life and we overcome or push death aside. So these are remote ritual laws, all purity, impurity. If you contact a dead body, if you touch the dead animal, if you you impure, what's impure? Impure. But if you look carefully, it's again purity is life, impurity is death, or sickness that's bringing you to death. So even the rituals. Let me give the concrete example of our lifetime because we live it. What's Shabbat about? It's not about not working. What Shabbat is, you put aside all work to immerse yourself in living for 24 hours. Don't go out and change the world. Don't do work. You know what you do? Live. What does it mean to live? Jewish definition of living, you have good meals with your family. <laughs> well, with, and better still, with your family. With your family. That's the definition of living it up. Or, again, conversation. You talk with people. You talk with your family. You talk with yourselves. You talk with your friends. Third example, rabbis say, it's a mitzvah to make love Friday night. Because that's what it means to live. To live is to make love and not to... So again, of course you can get caught on the outside external ritual or legal requirements, but it misses the point. What it's really trying to get you to do is immerse yourself more deeply in life. And the truth is, work is a very important part of life, but if you, don't, if you can't put it aside, if you can't close your, 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 your smartphone for 24 hours, you can't live. In order to, in order to live, you have to be able to put all the externals aside and really focus on living, thinking, meditating, learning, sharing, talking, singing, hugging, loving. That's exactly what Shabbat is really about. And of course, the same applies to the so-called ethical laws, even more so. What's the central law of Jewish tradition? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, of course, that has consequences. It means you can't cheat them. It means you have to look out for their needs. You have to help them. But in the end, what it's trying to get you to do is to become a loving person and to love life and to love people. And if you can get yourself, I know I, I love them all, but not this one. You know, I know, you know, I understand. But that's what we work at. I mean, obviously, these laws are not just you go by the book and you punch you know, the thing, what you have to do is you work at it. But that's, what I'm saying is it's trying to get, all the laws of the Torah are trying to get us to embrace life, to accept its joy, to accept or to share its suffering, and to embrace and say, this is the, this is the purpose and this is the joy. And this is really what living is, <laughs> living is all about living. Okay, so these are all examples of how life is central to our tradition. I'll just give two other examples. Of course, one, as I said, Again, it's a mitzvah. Pru or avu, to have children is a mitzvah in Jewish tradition. Now, again, you say having children is not a mitzvah. I mean, it's a biological function. It's a, it's a human instinct. It is. But the Torah tries to say, think of yourself as part of the chain of life, the whole human chain, which going back to the very beginning, not just to be first Jew, but to the first human being. That's a chain. If the chain had been broken, you wouldn't exist. If you're part of that chain of life, then it shouldn't end in your lifetime. That's what having children is about. And it's interesting. The Talmud says, oh, this is a mitzvah. It's not just a question of, this is a religious calling, a sacred calling, to have children. So again, the Talmud says, well, how many children should you have? Well, so the Talmud says, the minimum fulfillment of the mitzvah is, you can guess, how many? 
two kids, right. So again, there's an argument. One rabbi says, you have to have a boy and a girl. And the other says, no, you can have two boys, and they'll have two girls. It'll average out, but it, 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 it'll average out. But what's the point of having two? So the honest answer is, what was that? You got it. Help, say it. Replace yourself. In other words, they shouldn't. When you look back at your life, this is one good way of measuring what you lived and what was worthwhile. Is there more life in the world because you lived, or is there less life? Simple as that. Is there less life in the world because you lived? So again, if you have two children, the Talmud says, well, at least you've replaced yourself. So at least there's not less life in the world. <laughs> then the Talmud comes right back and quotes that verse I quoted 10 minutes ago. Isaiah's words, I didn't create the world to be empty, I created it to be settled. Says the Talmud, if you have two, it's a draw, you're not going to fill the world with life. If you want to fill the world with life, you have to have a third kid. The third child will, of course, those of you who study the statistics of the future of the American Jewish community know that this is exactly what's going on. That we are, now we have NPG, we have 1.7 average. It's very hard to have a 0.7 kid. I tried it, it's, not, it's, it's very hard. It, anyway, but that's not that. The point is, if you really want a future, you're going to have to have 2.3 or 2.7 or whatever. In Israel, the average is 3.1 and 3.2. That's, that's, that's the future again, because it, what it's trying to say, and of course, it's not just quantitative. It's also qualitative. Again, for example, if I, what if I can't have children? Well, my answer is you can adopt. You can force the child. What if I can't do that? How about educating? and improving the quality of the children that are in the world? Or how about looking out for or taking care of abandoned children or children who are in need? So the point is, what the Torah says, look at your own life and ask. Because you're living, things have to die, whether you're, you're, whether you're eating animals or whether you are driving a car, causing carbon pollution. So there's death in the world because you're alive, for you to be alive. Now, what you want to make sure is that your life increases life as against increases death. And that is one of the measures of a good life lived or not. And it doesn't just apply, of course, to quantity. It applies to quality. Because I lived, was there a better neighborhood? Was there a community or a sustaining synagogue or a sustaining community or a sustaining neighborhood? Because I lived, was there a sense of people knowing they have someone to turn to for help? Or vice versa. You, you get the point. That's the measure. <laughs> and of course, I'll finish with Two examples. One, of course, is the point of this is the general rule of Jewish tradition. There isn't a single act in life that's neutral. Because we sometimes waste our life because we say, well, it's not important. I'll just do it. The Talmud insists that every act of life is not neutral. It can make a difference. Famous passage in, in Deuteronomy. Moses says, this is his summary of the Torah. I'm putting before you today life and good, death and bad, evil. What's his advice? Choose life. Choose life. So the truth is, what do you mean to choose life? So most cases, not a choice, should I kill or not kill a person. Most cases, it's not even a choice, should I die or should I live? What it means is that in every act you do, you can make a choice that maximizes life or maximizes death. I'll give you an example, eating when I eat. So the next thing that I eat, I'm putting aside kashrut, that's for another topic for another time, but kashrut basically trying to teach you reverence for life. 
According to the kashrut, the ideal of kashrut is he shouldn't eat meat. The ideal of kashrut is vegetarian. Since why? It means that no higher animal should die, so I should live. Then the Torah, which is a realistic covenant and partnership, says, but the average person either needs the protein or they need to kill. <laughs> so the Torah permits meat with restrictions. That's a very Jewish style. They let you have it, but they take all the pleasure out of it in, or, in, in order to take the joy. No, but it, the point is the restrictions of kashrut are you should, you should know in your heart that ideally you shouldn't be killing animals to live. And again, there's a whole set of messages there. If you kill the animal, you have to slaughter it in a certain way so it dies immediately and painlessly. If you cook the animal, you should not cook it in milk because milk is a symbol of life and you've just killed. So keep the two separate. Admit that in fact you killed and you did it because you needed to do it, but limit it and back away from it and don't. So again, putting aside kashrut, I want to go beyond that because it's more than a kashrut that what the tradition is trying to say, when you eat, you should eat for life. What does that mean? It means eat healthy. Remember the last day, two weeks ago, I went to this wedding. I had this gorgeous wedding. It was really a beautiful wedding. I loved it. And of course, they had the Viennese table. That's the main feature. Who cares about the ceremony? You have the Viennese table. And of course, I come into this, and I come into this room, and it's jammed with every possible delight. You know, it's got ice cream. And right in the middle, it's got Haagen-Dazs vanilla chocolate with whipped cream on top. I mean, that I can't resist. I go running straight to the table. I take some, I start to eat. I say, oh my God, what have I done? I just shot my heart through a fat, cholesterol. <laughs> I mean, poison. That's what I did. I chose death. That's what I did. I, now, if I'd only controlled myself two minutes more to the next table, I could have seen right there was the celery. <laughs> Never mind, I choose death. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, my point is seriously. When you eat, you should be consciously thinking, is this, we have, we're, the human man is suffering now from all these, from all these sicknesses of overeating, right? Uh, I, don't, I mean just obesity, I'm talking about diabetes, I'm talking about all kinds of malnutrition or poor nutrition. So that's the point, the Torah again. So I'm saying, what it's trying to ask you to do is in every act, of, last example of that, how about speaking? When you speak, the next word you say to the next person next to you. So the issue is not just telling the truth or telling a lie. The issue is, do you speak a word of life or do you speak a word of death, right? The next word, you come to me, you ask me for advice, and I say, to, you know, you're thinking of changing your job because you want to do some important thing. And I say to you, you idiot, luckily they didn't detect how bad you are, so they're keeping you in your job. You, you, or it's, you can say a word of possibility, of hope, of encouragement, of respect, or you can say a word of Lush and Hera, a word that runs down the other person and knocks, degrades them. That's the point. The Torah said, in every word that you speak, consciously see, how do I increase life, the quality of life of my relationship, the quality of life of this person, as again saying a word that will degrade that person or will put them down or will weaken their respect. So in every step of the word, and the final obvious example is Bikoch Nefesh, in Jewish religion, saving a life overrides every commandment of the Torah, 610 out of 613. The other three, you don't override because if you overrode them, you'd be overriding life. But the principle is very clear. God is not interested in obedience. And this is not about law and observance. This is about choosing life. And therefore, if in 
choosing God's or Torah's commandment, it will interfere with life, it will prevent life, it will hurt life, then you have to override it. It's not just overriding, it's a mitzvah, it's an obligation to do that. Because in the end, that's the point, that our religion is, teaches the supremacy of life. And if you're not sure what to do next, and if you're not sure what changes we want to develop in our own religion, what's the answer? What Maimonides said about, I put before you good and life, life and good, death and evil. It says Maimonides, they equate to each other. Life, to choose life, that's the definition of a good act. To choose death, that's the definition of an evil act. And every sin, there is some choice of death or of degrading life or of quality, lesser quality of life. In every mitzvah and every good deed, and if you're not sure what it is, that's your answer. If I will take this step and it will increase my life, the life of the person I'm dealing with, it's a mitzvah, and if not, the other. So that's my reflection on how we, our religion tries to get us to practice living. So we're just going to take about 10 to 15 minutes of questions or comments, and I don't want to restrict it to this topic. So if you have other burning thoughts relevant about life, Jewish life, um, Rabbi Yitzhak's thought, feel free to use this opportunity as well. Yes. Thank you for heightening our sensitivity to the infinite value of life. In our country, we lose 30,000 lives every year as a result of firearms. Of I brought with me today... As a result of what? Firearms. 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 Gun violence. Uh, there was in the uh, Ask Your Rabbi feature in Moment Magazine three years ago, uh, you responded to that, saying that... Uh, in today's world, there's, there's no place for guns. That, that the Second Amendment you <coughs> should, should be repealed. Brett Stevens recently in the New York Times had, had a column saying exactly that. Uh, if, in fact, we treasure life, and if, in fact, we are losing 30,000 lives every year, should not Jewish leadership be leading a crusade? Uh, how, how, how should we, as, as a, a community, addressing this issue. How so, can we say, right? With Rabbi Kramer's permission, what I'd like to do is take a few questions right now. Okay. Um, and the ones that don't get answered at this moment, we'll have a dinner where you can also approach as well. So let's take a few questions, please. Good, yes, please. What if science teaches us that uh, that more lives, greater population, will actually <laughs> decrease life right. in the long run? Very good. Very good. Yeah. Okay. Great. One more? We have one more? I think that's enough to queue on right now. So um, just to recap, we'll, we'll, um, we want to do Peru and expand life, but overpopulation is also a problem. We have the, the, the gun violence issue. Um, and um, yes, and the end of life issue. Yes, also. Great. Wonderful. Hey, wonderful questions. I, mean, I don't have to answer them because it shows already that you understand the issue. And, and what the, seriously, very quick, on gun control, of course, that is my position, and I believe that I... I find it both frustrating and a little bit, it, it, it has forced me to admit that American tradition is very powerful, more powerful than me. I have that problem inside of orthodoxy too. I want to make all kinds of changes. They don't want to listen to me. But, but, but this, it is frustrating. In other words, the gun uh, advocates, it's Second Amendment, it's a history there. It's also become a kind of a cultural protection of their position. They feel all these you know, hotshot Urban liberals are trying to take away their guns. For all this reason, it's very entrenched. It's the only country in the world where you have this 
Israel has more guns certainly in America, but they have a, a cultural tradition. It's because the soldiers have to, you know, be able to defend against terror. But you don't, you don't use it recklessly. You don't. There is a res responsibility. You have to register. You you can't get it if you have problems. So I think to me, I find it both frustrating and really quite heartbreaking that this tradition is so entrenched that it's been able to resist what's an overwhelmingly clear. Not just, and I think the Jewish community should, in fact, speak up and, and try to push for leadership in this area. I also want to confess that uh, probably that will only seal its fate. <laughs> that they'll say it's the liberals again, the bleeding heart liberals. But I, it is, it's a classic example of where um, respect for tradition and an entrenched cultural attitude, you know, the Wild West, the American romantic past. Uh, has prevented what I think everybody understands would really be life-saving. Literally, thousands of lives would be saved. And so my answer is you got to keep nudging. you got to keep talking. you got to keep pushing it. And I hope someday we'll break through. But it, 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 is, it is, to me, uh, both troubling and mysterious. And again, it's one of the th America is a wonderful country. has many good qualities in which life is treated with special respect and so on. In this area, it's a classic example of the other way around. It's really a cheapening of life and a, and a weakening of protection of innocent people. I mean, again, I said to myself, like in Las Vegas, why should anybody, forget about this guy, why should anybody have a right to own a machine gun? I mean, or, I mean what possible reasonable use would he need? There's always a hunter in, in Alaska. I don't think hunters are allowed to use machine guns because they'll wipe out the whole animal population. So as I said, it's, it's a crazy thing that because of this entrenched attitude, this person could buy and, you know, and get access to it and, and then go ahead and, OK. Second question was end of life. And it's an important question. And it's a good example of, I think, of the Jewish, what I call the covenantal approach. The covenantal approach, I said, is every action you try to maximize life and minimize death. And yes, we're, our goal is to strengthen and to have life stronger and overcoming the other. Having said that, the, the covenantal approach is you do the best possible under the circumstances. So the answer is medicine should try to cure, and you should try every possible medical way of trying to help people. You have to make medicine available. You have to have insurance, all that. But having said that, Given what can't be changed, that's the Talmudic or halachic principle. Given what can't be changed, do the best right now. What can't be changed is, in fact, people are sick and are dying. And the answer is, do the best possible under these circumstances, which is what? Which is to respect and reverence and care for the life that's fading, for the life that is going, for the life that is not going to be saved anymore. As long as I can save it, that's my responsibility. Once I can save it, then my obligation is to show the respect for that life, because it's still infinitely valued, even though it's coming to an end. What do you mean? It means you try to provide hospice care. You try to provide uh, devoted and loving or kind attention to the very end. And an example of Jewish tradition, after death, you show respect for the corpse. Thus, the idea of burial is a responsibility of the family or the community. Thus, the idea in Jewish traditional groups of what's called the Chavra Kadisha, that preparing the body for, for burial, it's supposed to be done not by a professional. The ideal is volunteers from the community. 
because the idea is in the end for a human being, there are people who care about you, who love you, not because they're doing it for money. So show that respect to prepare the body. And then, of course, the respect of attending a funeral or walking with the coffin a little bit symbolically or going to the, to the grave or, again, shiva. These are all forms of respect for the life that once was. So again, that's the balance wheel. To the extent that we can make a world in which we save life, that's our first responsibility. Good example, Shemuel and I were talking before, autopsies. At first, we're opposed by many Orthodox rabbis, mistakenly so, because they said we have a tradition of respecting the dead body. We don't use it. We don't cut it. We don't deface it. What they missed was that was a way of respect for a dead body, which was once alive. But if you could, by an autopsy, save a life, then that turns it into a mitzvah, organ donation. It turns it into a mitzvah to take that organ and save a living thing. So again, the, the principle in all these matters is the supremacy of life. But we never write off life at the end. We treat it respect to the very end the best we can, particularly if we can save it to show it that respect. Did you? If we have a way of ending suffering which speeds up death, is that contradictory? No, so that's a good tension. The answer is historically, and I, I, I think I'm, I'm probably in this camp too. Historically, the tradition said you don't, you don't um, uh, you know, cut a life short of course, there the answer was, you don't cut a life short. That's the general principle, because it's still valuable, infinitely valuable, as long as it's alive. Now there's been a whole moral um, challenge that has said, this is not a question of convenience for the living or, or living respect. I'm suffering and nothing I can do for you. What can I do now? So the argument has been, my, my hesitation with that is the old slippery slope argument, which is, at what point do you make that decision? And is this not going to lead at some point cutting off earlier or earlier than they could have or should have? And of course, I've talked to doctors about it too. In many of these cases, what you can do is, and they do this a lot, is to give them you know, morphine and forms of painkilling rather than cut the life short. My great fear is that if you lose that taboo or fear or whatever it is about reverence for life by saying I can cut it short to make life less painful, that it's not a big jump from there to, you know, to, um, well, because it's expensive and who needs to hold on and it's, and it's annoying to the family and who needs, and I've read, of course, again, you don't know if this is real or exaggerated, I've read in Holland places where euthanasia has been legitimated, there's been a lot of talk about where people uh, helped or prematurely or, so Personally, I'm still on the side of very hesitant to do that line, but I understand there's a serious moral question here which needs to be maybe unfold as we go along. What was the third, what was the third question now? Overpopulation. Overpopulation, yeah. Now, that's a good example, and you put the heart of it by saying it right there. Our commitment is to overflowing life, and in fact, one of the health of societies, one of the problems of Japan, for example, was that had not enough children, and the result is the society not only aging out, but really unable to produce and go on. So it's a sign of vitality to be able to create new life. That having been said, the goal is quality of life. And in fact, if the constant increase of population overtaxes the environment, overtaxes the world, and hurts the quality of life, yes. And I, of course, my answer is my wife, Blue, attended this 
World Population Conference in Cairo about 10 years ago. And of course, everybody came there. And of course, it's the third world, and they're right. They all came there with the full of the point of, we need birth control, we need to cut population. The Chinese, of course, you recall, for 20 years, 30 years, you weren't allowed to have more than one child. One of the dangers of that, you could see what they did in China. But So she, everybody came there. She, of course, she's Jewish. So she comes, and she talks about the importance of having you know, two or three children and family. So they all jumped on. So Bluefly said, look, my answer is the Jewish people, we just lived through the Holocaust. We have not recovered from that. And I really feel that we need to have larger population, not less. So, but my answer is, each community should act in accordance with its realities. Yes, in Egypt and in a lot of other countries right now, the large population, the large families are dragging down the quality. They can't take care of the children probably. They don't have proper medicine. They don't have proper tuition to pay for the education. So my answer is that the people who cannot raise and take care of children probably should act as birth control and have smaller families. And the people who can can have larger families. Now, again, well, larger means what? No, I don't think the solution is the Hasidic, uh, if you will, Haredi solution of seven, eight, ten kids. I think, to me, Israel is a perfect example of what I would consider an ideal because it's, it's an average of three. It's a community that has, it's the most, it's the highest average of any of the developed countries, whether Europe or, or Middle East. And why? Because in this case, it's the combination of high standard of living and strong and strong desire for education and so on, which, re which restricts family, combined with this love of family and the tradition of life and maybe some recognition about the Holocaust. So you have this interplay, much healthier. If the average family is three, you're not talking about a ex world explosion and you're not talking about uh, you know, having seven, eight, ten children. And I think it's much healthier if the whole community has this kind of size family rather than half the community is practicing 1.3 or 1.7, and the other 110% is doing seven or eight. I don't think it's, it's good on either side. It's part of a balancing act. So again, the, the answer is life is the priority. Life is the value. Increasing life is our goal, but we also understand that if you increase it to the point where it decreases quality of life, it's a mistake, and you have to exercise proper control. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.